Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want you to find chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have sang greatly this morning about making much of Christ, for Him being magnified in our lives, and we want to continue to do that in this sermon series that we will end today called The Wisdom of God. Beginning next week, I'm going to start unpacking a journey through Easter for you and I. And then just following Easter, we're going to dive right back into the book of 1 Corinthians beginning in chapter 3. But we find ourselves in the last three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16 in this sermon series called The Wisdom of God. Of God. Now, we know that God is the owner of wisdom, but he's not stingy with it. The half-brother of Jesus. The apostle James wrote these words in James 1, 5, I have reminded them to you, or reminded you of them, each and every week. James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In, in other words, not only does the Lord have and possess all wisdom, he wants us to have that wisdom. And it is the subject of the wisdom of God that Paul takes aim with because of what he's dealing with in the Corinthian church. The letter of 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to the church in Corinth that had lost its way. Now, Paul loved these people. Paul may have been frustrated, but he did not want ill will toward them. As an apostle, as a missionary, as an elder, Paul desired that they make sure they understand the wisdom of God, especially in light of the world's wisdom that often sounds tremendously spiritual and at first glance can even appear to be Christian inside of the culture of Christianity. This is why Paul is dealing with this subject. And I come to you this morning to preach a simple message entitled, The Wisdom of Two Lives. We hear a lot today about diversity. Diversity in and of itself simply means a multitude of people from various backgrounds, ethnicity, religions. I've always said, and when I have the privilege of training young men and women for ministry, I remind them, you don't need to become a minister. You don't need to answer God's call to pastor if you don't love people. So I, I do. I enjoy all kinds of people. Some of you aren't people people. You like to be with yourself. The size of this church bothers you. And others of you love people. You want to be wherever people are. You feed off of people. When you very uh, grossly categorize people as extroverts and introverts, what you often find is that extroverts feed off relationships and people, and introverts need that alone time to center themselves and to focus. It does not mean introverts don't love people. And it doesn't always mean that extroverts automatically love people. Introverts can be very kind and gracious and warm and outgoing when they need to be. But the way they're refueled, the way they replenish their soul is to be by themselves, to be with a small group of people. 
Extroverts feed off people. I don't want to keep this uh, in suspense. I'm an extrovert. (laughs) I know you're wondering. I actually have some friends who are incredible, effective pastors who are introverts, and they've learned how to do that. I am an extrovert. I enjoy being with you. In fact, when I dream about a future church after retirement, I'd like to go somewhere in the country where the hunting's good and pastor about 100 people so I could actually know everybody and get to know you and eat your casseroles and your mashed potatoes and gravy and sit on your tailgates and watch your kids' ball games. I feel like a small church pastor in a big church. I'm an extrovert. Therefore, I like people. And as I was praying about this introduction, I wanted to be able to say I like all people. But that's not true. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you. I'll tell you a few people I don't like. You ready? Write this down. You can tweak this if you want to. I do not like people that drive slow in the left lane. I don't care what color they are. I have no racism in my heart. I'm not interested in social demographic. Some of the precious friends in my life work by the hour and, and don't ever make a lot of money. And, and I've never been impressed by someone just because of the money they make. I, I, I find myself being drawn to all kinds of people. I like simple folks. I like complex folks. I like people that have wonderful, warm personalities. I even like those with difficult personalities because I see it as a challenge to get them to like me. But if you drive slow in the left lane i got to pray for me when I come up on you. I don't like people that are too lazy to put the buggy back in the buggy rack at the grocery store. I just, I struggle with that. I, I do. I really struggle with that. And finally, I don't like people that throw trash out on the road. Now, I don't know these people. I should say I don't like that behavior. We've all had a piece of trash blow out of the back of our truck. But I was driving the other day near some property out in the middle of the woods, beautiful, and there was two couches. (laughs) That didn't blow out. You had to stop and make a decision. (laughs) Look how beautiful these woods are. There's a creek there and a, a nice hill and hardwoods and pines and mixed fields. I think I'll dump this old couch right here. And get that one, too. I struggle with that. But in the multitude of thinking about people, I find that if you'll take a little time to get to know them, I can say this with honesty. I can find something about every person that I enjoy, that I like, and appreciate. And if I ever struggle with a person, I have to take a step back and remind myself of the truth. The truth is is that no matter who they are, what they're doing, or how they're acting, they're created by God. He loves them. So much so that he sent his son to die for them. So I don't have the right, the time, or the energy to harbor bitterness against someone, even if they may offend me by their behavior. But in the multiplicity of personalities, what if I told you, theologically around the gospel, there are just two people. There are only two people. In fact, this is what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthian believers. He's trying to differentiate between people who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't. One of the things we've established is that the wisdom of God comes in the person of God known as the Holy Spirit living in us. 
You don't just absorb God's wisdom by merely being around God's people. Can you gain some? Absolutely. But the true wisdom of God put within us comes to us through the wonderful presence of Christ in our lives. And when we receive Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has access to all of the wisdom of God for our lives because the Holy Spirit is fully God. And so to conclude this chapter, Paul paints the picture for you and me of two different men. Now, ladies, he's talking about mankind, even though he uses the word man. He's talking about people, regardless of their gender. He's talking about two conditions, two people, two hearts, two lives. Let me show you what I mean. Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Notice the word spirit is capitalized. The editors are telling you he's referencing the Holy Spirit. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, there comes our second person. The spiritual person judges all things. For but he himself, or but is himself, to be judged by no one. Let me explain what that means in a few moments. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? You may notice a quotation mark in your uh, modern translation. That's because he's quoting from Isaiah. But we have the mind of Christ. If, if you have your Bible open, whether you have a printed copy as I prefer or an app, if you were to look at the very beginning of this chapter, a few weeks ago, I preached a message about ministry that hits different. And I tried to differentiate what it looks like to manipulate people into emotional decisions through your own charisma or ability to wax eloquently or speak to the rationale of the human mind versus simply giving people the gospel and asking them to place their faith in God, not the man on the stage or the personality at the head of the ministry. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we walked through that. I want to draw your attention to the last part of that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, why would Paul say this is important? Here's why. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul ultimately says, when the gospel is proclaimed correctly, then people will correctly place their faith in Christ and not incorrectly place their faith in the wisdom of man. Now, he begins the chapter that way, and he ends the chapter that way. He says, as I close, there's a natural man and a spiritual man, and they really live two lives. Now, what makes a natural man a natural man? This is not 
a reference to how we come to this earth or how we are born. We are all made in the image of God. There are times in pop culture where people celebrate that which is natural. There's a movement among many of you to eat more organic, to eat more naturally. There are good contexts in which you use the word natural. In fact, you make me feel like a natural woman. It's a famous song about a woman being so filled with love by her man that she naturally wants to be his woman and she feels fulfilled. So there are ways in which we use the word natural in a good way. This is not one of those. In the original language, it's almost as if Paul is saying there is the man who remains in his natural state of being disconnected with God. In fact, the only other place this word is used in the New Testament is in Jude 19. Now, notice when I use the reference of Jude, there's no chapters because Jude has no chapters. It is a short book with no chapters, just verses. And Jude, verse 19, Jude is talking about people who are disrupting the church, and this is what he says. It is these who cause divisions Worldly people, same word as natural person, but then he defines it, devoid of the Spirit. So in the simplest, most clear understanding, Paul is saying people in the world without the Holy Spirit are the natural people he's speaking about. Now, those people can fulfill a spectrum of behaviors. You may have a kind and gracious, moral and good neighbor who does not believe upon Christ and remain in their natural state. Your children who've not yet chosen to trust Christ, who've not been saved, I have those in my home living with me, are in that natural state where God loves them. I'm certain that God's grace is working in their life, but the Holy Spirit does not live in them because they have not been born again through faith and repentance in Christ. So a natural person, according to Paul's definition, based here and based on what Jude wrote, is someone without a relationship with Jesus, and by default, they do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit. What does this person's life look like? How would you describe this person? Well, this is what verse 14 says. Look at verse 14. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, what are the things of the Spirit of God? Well, there's a little bit of clue a little bit later. Look what the next phrase is. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. That word folly gives us a clue in chapter 1, verse 18. If you scroll up or flip back, you'll see Paul write these words. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So specifically speaking, the things of the Spirit of God is the message of the gospel, which is most symbolized by the cross. But it's more than just the factual belief that Jesus came, lived, died on a cross, and rose again. There are many people who believe that, yet remain disconnected from Christ, because the call of the gospel is not simply to believe in the life and the activity of Jesus, it is to willingly surrender the control of your life to him, recognizing that his cross is not only evidence of his love, it's an indictment 
on our sin. Why does the world push against the cross? Because the cross proves how sinful we are. The Bible has much to say about the value of human beings and God's love for us and his grace in our lives. But the Bible also makes no bones about it, is crystal clear that we, in our state of being born, men and women, are born with a fallen nature. We are sinners and we struggle and rebel against God in our lives. And if left to our own, we will die in our sin and stand and give an account to God for our sinful condition. God in his grace sent his son Jesus to die that our sin might be atoned for. So to receive the gospel is to say, I not only believe that Jesus came, lived, and died on the cross and rose again, I believe that if he did not do those things, I would be condemned. And I believe that if I do not trust in him, the weight of my sin, the guilt of my track record will be on me and not on him. And so I thrust my weight onto him. I thrust my life in his arms. I cast my destiny before his mercy. And I believe that the cross where Jesus died is the place where my sin was paid for. And my life then, as Josh sang so beautifully a few moments ago, is a living sacrifice of daily dying to my desires for his wisdom in my life. If someone hears that and rejects that, What stops them from being saved? Pride. Pride. The belief that I'm not that bad, or the belief that I'm okay, or the belief that I'm not in sin, or the belief that I will be a good person and God will accept me, all may sound well and good, but they are pride. In fact, if you were to describe this natural person, you would see conceit which then leads to confusion, and then it's a cycle of captivity. Look at verse 14. I'll show you what I mean. He says in verse 14, for the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's not for me. This word accept doesn't mean they don't understand. It's not gibberish to them. They hear it. They can understand the facts. Some of the greatest New Testament scholars in the world are not Christians. You can read the Bible you can understand exactly what the Bible is saying on a cognitive level. But if you don't accept the message of the gospel in your own life as the reality for your sin and your salvation, then you won't understand it spiritually. Think about it this way. Jesus is God revealed to us. He's the revelation. The scripture is God's word given to us. That's the inspiration of scripture. And the presence of the Holy Spirit takes the revelation of Jesus and the inspiration of the Scripture and gives it illumination. It makes sense to us. It registers. We not only contemplate it cognitively, it registers in the seat of our being. Our soul resonates with the message of the gospel. And until that happens, you can't discern the things of God, which is exactly why verse 14 says these words. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. So notice how the cycle goes. The gospel's heard. You reject the gospel. When you reject the gospel, you remain in your pride, your conceit. That leads to confusion. Look at the world around you. Top officials now don't even know the definition of a woman. And then the conceit now turns into a life of captivity. 
You're held captive by the fact that you're fumbling through life, trying to make sense of it with the world's wisdom, and it never seems to lead to resolution. It never seems to lead to peace or fulfillment or for joy, and you become more wallowed, mired in your conceit and your confusion and your captivity. It just goes on and on and on. This is why Jesus spoke about lostness as blindness spiritually. So this is the state of a natural person. Now, when that person comes to Christ, when they say, I'm, I'm not going to be in charge anymore. I'm, 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 I'm not just going to raise my hand or get dipped in water or check a card. I am surrendering my life to you, Jesus. You can have it. You can take my filth and my righteousness. You can take my weaknesses and my strengths. You can take my talents, and you can take the things I'm terrible at. You, you can have it. I look to you and you alone. At that moment, according to the promise of Scripture, when true faith is expressed, when the hand of faith extends toward heaven, the hand of grace extends down, and salvation comes, and that person is made new. They're made alive in Christ. They're born again. Then the Holy Spirit is given, and that man or woman, that child, that teenager, becomes spiritual. Now listen, they do not become spiritually mature. That takes time. But they become spiritual. And their life is described in verses 15 and 16. Look what the passage says. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, this requires some clarity here. Because we have all heard people abuse the teachings of Scripture and say things that the Scripture doesn't say. I seem to remember in elementary school and middle school, people wearing T-shirts with Tupac on it. And one of his famous saying was, only God judges me. And I've heard people say that. Only God can judge me. Well, the problem with that is the Bible. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we, at times, are to discern fruit and sin in other people's lives. I don't know about you, but I would not be standing here today had I not pe had, had people in my life past and present, who were willing to affirm and encourage the things in my life that honored the Lord and were willing to call me out if I was straying from the Lord. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the judgment we receive from the world in being spiritual. In other words, when the world laughs or makes fun of us or calls us old-fashioned or says that we somehow are hateful because of our beliefs, I go back to this verse. They don't have any standing to judge me. I'm not judged by the standards of the world because upon salvation, I don't belong to the world anymore. Now, they can still make their judgments. They just don't stick. In fact, a lot of people can have a lot of opinions about a lot of things. What I want to care about are, are the people that I truly will be measured by judging me correctly. So this is why he says the believer, the spiritual person, Judges all things. Does that mean that Christians are judgmental? No. He's saying the believer, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, now has the ability to look at everything in the world and assign it its proper value. I can spot that which is of God, 
and I can spot that which is of the enemy. I can see things that may on the outside look spiritual, but underneath ultimately are based in human wisdom. In other words, you and I, if we have the Holy Spirit, have the Spirit of God that can help us sift through everything we encounter and then come to the conclusion, is this of the Lord? Is it not of the Lord? If it's of the Lord, what am I supposed to do with it? If it's not of the Lord, am I supposed to reject it? Should I try to redeem it? Is there something I can do? And that daily exercise of making judgment on all things according to the presence of the Spirit of God is how we are transformed from being spiritual to being spiritually mature. So, so think about it this way. If the natural man's life is conceit and confusion and captivity, then the spiritual man's life is really built on clarity. I'm not confused anymore. I'm able to discern what is right and wrong. Now, how does that come? Real quick, give me, I'll give you three Ds. You, you need to desire it. You have to want to be spiritually mature. You got to digest God's Word because the Spirit of God gave men of God the words of God to feed the child of God so that the Spirit of God in me can affirm and bear witness to what he has already given in the Scriptures. And then he, the Spirit, through his gifts in my life, help me take the scripture and apply it to the way that I live. And this is not true just of your pastor or a missionary or a small group leader. This is true of every single Christian. So you desire it, you digest it, but then you depend on the spirit to do it. There is a limit to what I can do in my own heart. I know this though, the more I put myself in a position to grow spiritually, the more the Lord tends to grow me spiritually. The, the more we position ourselves to grow the more he grows us, the more you work your bicep, the bigger it's going to get. The more you count your calories or make wise decisions, the better your health will be. This principle is true spiritually as well. So there's clarity, but because there's clarity, then there's confidence. It, it doesn't matter to me if the world makes fun of how I parent my children. I, I, I don't need the world's approval of what I believe or what I don't believe. I, I no longer feel judged by the world. In fact, we're not judged by the world. We're called to the world. I'm not interested in the world's applause or affirmation. I'm interested in the world's salvation. Because I and you as believers, those of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit, you and I can judge things for what they are. I expect the world to act worldly. I do not expect the world to approve of my life. I think the generation under me will see a far different level of persecution in our nation. I think that my generation, pastors in their 40s, could be leading the last generation of megachurches in the world. I think the church may see drastic changes over the next 50 and 75 years, and I think the greatest threat will come from a continual assault on the values that are orthodox in their Christianity and churches like ours and many others lose their nonprofit status, changes the giving structure tremendously, and all of a sudden the resources that we have will be cut because many people are motivated by the nonprofit status and their charitable giving. That's not, that shouldn't be the motive of our giving, but it affects everything. In, in other words, I think that 100 years from now, if the Lord does not return, 
we will see far more persecution in North America of the church. This is why our confidence has to be in the Lord. And the clarity and the confidence is given to us because we're confident. We can do it. Now, it may sound like we're patting ourselves on the back, but we're not. Why can a woman in this room discern the will of God if she has the Holy Spirit? Because she's been given the mind of Christ. Look at verse 16. This is what the scripture says. Paul rhetorically asked the question. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Paul's trying to ask a question, and everybody goes, well, nobody can fully understand the mind of the Lord. Nobody can fully say they can discern the will of God on their own. The answer to the rhetorical question is yes, until, but we have the mind of Christ. What did Paul tell the Philippian believers in chapter 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. He does not say, which you hope you get. He doesn't say, which you get in your 40s. (laughs) He says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So notice the inference. Paul's saying, upon salvation, you've been given access to think like God would have you think. To believe and to act and to speak and to behave in a way that honors the Lord. Doesn't mean we always do it. But if we fail, it is not because God has not delivered to us everything we need to obey him in the power of his salvation, the presence of his spirit, and the goodness and the completeness of his word. And so we have access to the mind of Christ. And think about the most mature Christian you can think about. Who's the man or woman in your life that you admire for their day-to-day spiritual maturity? What you would say in your own words if you were to articulate what you admire about them is that they are Christ-like in their actions. They think about the Lord in what they do and what they say. They honor his word. Now, here's the good news. That's not supposed to be just for an elite group of Christians. God's desire is that every single Christian grow into the fullness and maturity of the Lord. Why do you think churches are so weak? Why do you think many churches are shrinking and dying? Because the goal is too low. If the goal is attendance, a lot of people can attend. The goal is maturity. I've never seen a church that focused on spiritual maturity that had a growth problem. It doesn't mean that every church is always going to grow exponentially. A lot of that's determined by the community you live in, the demographic you're serving. But if you have a group of people, whether it be five people or 500 people, genuinely growing in the Lord... The other areas of growth, financial growth, numerical growth, ministry growth, will take care of itself out of the outflow of their own spiritual maturity. So when you think about this passage, I worked through it rather quickly, and I've left myself a few moments because I wanted to end this series by helping you get down into the trenches of applying this to your life. What does this look like fleshed out in real life? In fact, I'm done with the text. I've honored it. But but I want to take the text and I want to show you. And when I thought about how to show you, I thought about the issues you bring up, the stuff you're talking about, the things you're praying about, the issues you may find yourself worrying about, the questions that you ask. So so, so I, I made a list of nine topics. And I tried to apply God's wisdom to these topics. So, so this is not an exhaustive list. Purpose in life, sex, gender, marriage, parenting, money, fear, worry, anxiety, all kind of mixed together. Mission, gospel, and church. You talk with me 
You email me. You message me a lot about these issues. These issues tend to always come up in our counseling ministry and in discipleship. And I would submit to you that I observe three people. I observe natural people. That's a person without Christ. That's all around us. But then I also observe spiritual people or a spiritual person, someone who professes Christ, but they're still thinking worldly. They still think naturally. This could be an immature Christian or it could be someone who has a false sense of salvation. They, 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 they would say that they've been born again, but there's no repentance, there's no spiritual fruit, there's no remorse over sin, there's no life change. They've made a cognitive ascent, but there's no surrender in their life. And so they say Christian things, they do Christian things, they hang around Christian people, but they still think worldly. Or they're truly saved and they've never grown. They're a babe in Christ. And then there's that third person that's a spiritual person. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Spiritual people struggle with sin. Spiritual people make mistakes. According to Paul's definition, spiritual people have the presence of the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that in every moment and in every circumstance they always submit to it. It does mean that the pattern of their life is a desire to honor Christ, obey the Spirit, live the Word in all things. So in thinking about those three people about a month ago, I began thinking through these topics. Now, I'm about to give you a lot of words. If you're a note taker, you'll be frustrated with me. I'll ask our comm team to make these available some way, somehow. I would rather you think and listen than try to write. And we will make them available. So you don't have to pull your phones out and make pictures because I'm normally in the picture and that ruins almost all pictures. Let's take these topics one for one very quickly as we close. The natural person on the purpose of life. Someone who's lost, this is what they would say. I want to be happy and successful, and I love people who help me experience these things. That's how the world thinks. Now, what about a spiritual person who's thinking naturally? Oh, I want to be a good person. And I always give credit to God and give God the glory. And I want to help others if I can, and I'd like to love my family well. Let me tell you what this is in Spartanburg. That's a good old boy. Good old boy. Love you. I love you. Hell's full of good old boys. Let me tell you about a spiritual person's view of purpose on life. I belong to God, and my life is his. Therefore, I want to bring glory to him in all things and submit fully to his will so that others see his presence in my life as I enjoy his goodness. This is the kind of woman I want to be around. This is the kind of man I want to be around. Let's take sex. Natural man or natural person, sex is a powerful human need. Therefore, as long as it involves consenting adults, each person should experiment and experience the sexual relationships that they feel most fulfill their life. This is the theology of a world without Christ. It's pretty obvious. Just pull up any headline. Now, what about the professing Christian who's still thinking naturally? The world is so sexually perverted. I'm glad I'm not like that. Uh, but when it comes to me and my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my fiance, well, it's different. We love each other, and we're not involved. We're not sleeping with anybody else, and we're probably going to get married. Church is full of this. 
Nobody in the room can say they've never had a struggle with sexual sin because we're all sexual. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm just telling you that's not the Spirit of God. That's not His will. He's got something better for you. Here's the Spirit of God. Sex is an incredible gift given by God to me and my spouse or my future spouse. Therefore, there's no place for sex in my life until I'm in a covenant marriage relationship with my husband or wife. If I am married, my spouse alone should be the sole recipient of my sexual affection and attention. That's the standard. You say, well, that's unreachable. It is on your own power. But I can tell you, our church has young people that are saving themselves from marriage. Our church has men who used to be addicted to porn and have cleaned their life up by the power of Christ and are only focusing on their wife now. Our church has men and women who, when they do struggle with lust, they call it, deal with it, back away from it, and go back and reconcile in their mind, in their heart, and if need to be, with their wife. I'm not telling you anybody's going to make perfection this side of heaven. I'm telling you this is the will of God, and he's the creator of this powerful gift, so he knows how it's most pleasurable. What I tell young people is the greatest sex is not what the magazine at Foodline says when you check out. It's what the guy, excuse me, the God who created sex says, and that is guilt-free, pleasurable, affirming, loving, child-creating relationships inside of a marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. What about the natural person on gender? Well, gosh, this is all over the place. Humans are complex, and therefore they have the right and the power to choose to identify as whatever gender they feel most fully expresses their true identity, regardless of their biological sex at birth. This is the gospel of the day in gender. So how does this work among people who profess Christ but remain immature? Some people are freaks. I'm glad I'm not like that. Heaven forbid one of my kids tell me they want to choose a different gender. I hear Christians say things like that, professed Christians. So what should a woman of God or a man of God say? God's word clearly says that he creates humans male and female. It is his decision. There is no distinction in scripture between the biological bodies God gives us in the womb and our gender. Individuals that are confused and struggling with their gender identity deserve respect, compassion, and the truth of the gospel. They do not benefit from redefining what God has already established. That's spiritual wisdom. Just a few more. What about the natural man on marriage? Well, here's what the world says. When two people, regardless of sex, decide they want to commit to one another and reach some form of covenant or contract... It's beneficial as long as all parties are happy and fulfilled. That's what the world thinks. The world still oohs and ahs over weddings, even though the world has no idea what covenant marriage is. Now, some folks who claim to be Christian, or maybe they're young in their faith, this is how they view it. I love my spouse and hope we make it all the way. If we don't, it's not like divorce is the unforgivable sin. Sometimes people fall out of love and grow apart. God wants us to be happy, so when the happiness is gone, It might be time to move on. I've heard people claiming to be Christians. This is their view of marriage. Let me tell you what God's view of marriage is. Second to my salvation, God's provision of my spouse is a display of his grace and goodness. When I join my life to my husband or wife, I exist as an individual no more. 
Our bond is physical, sexual, emotional, and spiritual. My purpose is to honor my vow, serve my spouse, and allow the journey of our marriage to sanctify us to be more like Christ and display his power to others. Never, never have I seen a marriage where man and woman both believe this that wasn't reconcilable. Never. Just a few more. The natural man or person on parenting. Kids are great. They are pure and wonderful and come into this world with so much potential for good. There's more garbage. (laughs) It is the world that corrupts them, so my job is to protect them and then let them chart their own course wherever their heart may lead. Mm. Now, let me baptize that in some Christian talk for the spiritual person still thinking naturally. Parents are crazy these days. Kids must be loved and disciplined. But you can't shove Jesus down their throat. I work hard to give my kids stuff I did not have, and I hope they find happiness. I've heard Christians say things like that. Now let me tell you what God would say. My children belong to the Lord. I have been given the privilege of shaping their hearts to see the greatness and goodness of God. Following Jesus in front of them and honoring his word in our family puts my children in the best position to believe upon Christ for salvation. They are sinners who need to repent and place their faith in Christ for salvation. If they come to know Christ, I want to help launch them into his service within the kingdom, no matter the cost or the sacrifice he may require. That's the kind of people that raise children who shrink hell and make heaven a bigger place. I want the enemy to hate the fact that me and Laurel are raising kids. I want the enemy to hate the fact that you and I are shaping them the way we are. Next one. Natural person on money. Get all you can. Enjoy most of it and give some away if you want to. This is what the world says. Now let me tell you about the spiritual person who's still thinking like the world. I work hard to earn my money. Notice the personal. And I do so to provide for my family. And when I can, after I've taken care of my wants and needs, I give some to the church and some charities I believe in. See, it's my family, my money. I work hard for it. Oh, and I want to help the church out. Now, let me tell you about the spiritual woman or the spiritual man. My money is not mine. It is the Lord's. He provides so that I can care for my family and support his kingdom. After I tithe to his work, make wise decisions for my family, and help others in need, I absolutely can then enjoy a portion of his wealth in my life. Here's the natural person on the subject of fear, worry, anxiety. We all get stressed out, anxious, and worrisome, so I tend to loosen up with a drink and not out or just try to get away from it all. This is the world's coping mechanism. Let's run to the weekend. Let's escape. Let's create a mirage on Facebook or Instagram that lets other people not know how much we're hurting. Now, what about the spiritual person who's still thinking naturally? When I get overwhelmed, I'll tell you, I'll break down and pray about it. I'll talk to my pastor or a friend who's a good listener, and and that usually helps me feel better. There's some truth in that, but there's so much left on the table. Let me tell you about a spiritual man with his fear or his anxiety. Feeling fear, anxiety, or experiencing worry are real emotions, but they do not change the truth of God's protection in my life. I recognize that when these feelings come, it is a faith issue, not a circumstance issue. My daily walk with Christ and the spiritual disciplines of my life are my greatest tools against fear and worry. Two more. Natural person on the mission, the gospel. 
All religions have their main beliefs. I'm mostly interested in my happiness, so I don't feel qualified or called to try to tell others how to live or what to believe. You hear that a lot. Hey, everybody's got to get to God in their own way. This is of the world. Now, let me tell you about the spiritual person who still thinks like the world. People need the Lord. I hear all Christians say that. I'm glad I have him. I'm glad I come from a Christian family. I'm glad my preacher preaches the gospel in my church, sins, teams. I give when I can. My kid went on a mission trip last summer, and I feel like I share the gospel with the way I live. Again, some truth, but not mature. Let me show you maturity. I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I have been invited to join God in his mission to see others saved. So I have no choice but to leverage my life for his mission of making disciples of all nations. I'm consistently praying for my friends and family, asking God to give me the courage to speak when he opens the door. Additionally, just like I enjoy time on vacation and traveling, I've made it a priority to spend some of my time and money helping my church get the gospel to people who do not have it. I've also told the Lord that I will support any of my children fully should they be called to go to the nations on a permanent basis. Recently, I had dinner with one of my children who's dealing with a call to missions. And I said to him, if you are called by God to buy a one-way ticket and I never see you again, I'll see you in heaven. And it was a joy to be your daddy. Stop helicoptering your kids off of the mission field. They are not our children. They have been given to us by the king. And I would much rather spend eternity joyfully enjoying their presence than grasping for 70 or 80 years on this earth and keep them from the mission Christ has called them to. The church, last one. Well, you know what the world's going to say. If religious people want to go to church and it makes them feel better, then good for them. I don't need organized religion to connect with God. I love this one. I connect with God on my bass boat. I connect with God when I watch my son play travel baseball every weekend. I connect with God when we're in the mountains. I heard a preacher say one time, my church is up or down. I said, what do you mean? He said, they're either up at the, beach, up at the mountains or down at the beach. I can't find them. <laughs> Let me tell you how a spiritual person thinking naturally. Church is where I go to get my blessing and encouragement. I also like my kids to be around positive influence. When our schedule allows, we almost always are at church because I love all the stuff they do for my family. Do you hear the selfishness and the transactional nature of that? Now, let me show you how a spiritual man or woman views church. When Christ saved me, he made me a part of his body. The church is my spiritual family, and I know I cannot fully experience the gospel on my own. My brothers and sisters belong to me, and I belong to them. Just as I'm committed to my marriage and family, I'm bound to my church family. Even my gifts, talents, abilities, and resources are given that I may strengthen my church family as we seek to serve Christ together and encourage one another. Do you see it? I think everybody listening to me this morning online or here live can pick out the lost I think it's that middle of the road where we're saved, but we're still thinking naturally. It keeps us from accomplishing what God would hoping. Listen, if you think one of these hits you between the eyes, imagine being the guy that wrote them. I don't say this in arrogance, and I have not arrived. And even as I read them to you, I think about areas the Spirit is dealing with me in my own life about. 
but I'm not your shepherd and I'm not worth being your shepherd if I'm not going to call us to the spirit of the wisdom of God and the power of Christ in our lives. So I have to ask you a question. Which wisdom are you using and which life are you living?